0: Into this, last week we wrapped up the session, talking a little bit about uh, why there was a crisis uh, in the community, the Islamic community, uh, upon Muhammad's death. So Muhammad dies 632, and there's this crisis. So on one level, uh, why? What? Why is there a crisis? Why did there, Why didn't things just kind of flow out? Uh, the fact that he didn't uh, designate someone to you know take over his the leadership of the community um, why couldn't they just figure it out on their own you know why is it why did they actually need someone to choose a leader to lead the community after his death um, and what was that and then we kind of segued in to try to explain that we segued into this uh, why a lot of Muslims who come to Christ why they actually struggle uh, in, their, in this transition uh, and this is you know, the, the fact, we talked a little bit, uh, 10 or 15 minutes, about uh, how important community is. And lack of community actually uh, really has an effect on Muslims who come to Christ uh, and not being able to plug in, not able to find that replacement for what they're coming out of. You know, we spent a lot of time in the beginning of, of the se- uh, semester talking about how uh, Muslim culture, Arab, Middle Eastern culture is very family-oriented. And how this plays a big, even so, whether you're Muslim or Christian, um, it really Jew, it, it really doesn't matter. It's it's um, they're very family-oriented cultures, and that you know, for the Muslim who comes to Christ, leaving one culture, leaving one family structure, why it's and the security um, of all that all that entails, and then jumping into another uh, community that doesn't. Is not able to meet those needs in the same way, uh, and the struggle that a lot of Muslims who come to Christ have. And we were trying, so we're trying to connect these two concepts. You know, why why there's this crisis in the community in Islam after Muhammad's death, and then we talked a little bit about what other Muslims struggle with when they come to Christ, and the, the connection that we were trying to, I was trying to make at the end is that for the, the Muslims who were following Muhammad in 632. Remember, all of them were coming out of situations um, where they were persecuted, where they left their families, where they left their clans, uh, had joined something new, joined this new community of believers that was actually taking the place of the, the family, the bloodlines, blood structures that had dominated the culture. So now they're in this new community and all of a sudden the head of that community is dead. And so now all of them are looking at this situation thinking, what now? Who's, if we don't have this leader, we're, we can't go back to where we came from. So we need someone to step up, and so it creates this crisis. So hopefully we're able to, to connect the dots there. Um, this new tribe that is uh, of, of believers, tribe you know, with uh, quotation marks, uh, the people had some place to turn to as they walked away from their old life. And that's what they were, that's what they were worried about. Is, is this new uh, family, uh, you know, that we talked about this concept of the Ummah. Uh, is this all over now? And where do I go? Where do I turn after, after we um, have just left where we, where we were? So now we, we go back to the Islamic community after Muhammad's death. Uh, the same issue was at the forefront of the decision making process some 1,400 years ago. This idea of we need someone to fill this vacuum to, so we can keep this community going. <clears throat> what now? What do we do now? Uh, if you remember, and there's a little bit of a parallel, biblically speaking, in the book of Acts. So, first two chapters of Acts, you know, the, everyone's in disarray. You know, they're sitting in the room. We don't know what to do. You know, they're all feeling sorry for themselves. It's it's There's a similar, there's a little bit of a parallel there with the early Christian, you know, the, the early believers there in the book of Acts. You know, kind of sitting around looking at themselves. Okay, now what? <clears throat> kind of exemplifying this, this nature of what's going on, you had a group, and this isn't that... Uh, I just write it so you guys the Karajites were a group of Muslims uh, in the, um, Egypt who a- after Muhammad's death decided well we're, we, don't, we don't need anything we're just going to form our own group and do our own thing so now you're already starting to see the Ummah fracture and this is exactly what everyone was afraid of these guys are like well we don't need anybody we're just going to kind of go, go off and do our own thing uh, and so immediately after Muhammad's death you start to see some of these issues Of the Bedouin tribes that had submitted to Muhammad, many felt themselves free of any further obligation and with or without new prophets to turn to. Remember this idea of prophethood. Refused to send any further zakat to Medina. So Medina was the capital of the Islamic empire when Muhammad was ruling, I shouldn't say empire, the Islamic community. And the zakat, the... Was basically the, the tribute. They had to send a tribute, a financial, uh, you know, tribute over to Medina to show their support. So these communities all of a sudden stopped sending this to, to Medina after Muhammad's death. Many others seem to have wanted only to see what the Muslims at Medina and Mecca would do. So they're waiting. What's going to happen? What are we? What's going? What are they going to do? Uh, for the power of the Quraysh, at least, had not been negligible, negligible even apart from Muhammad. So at Medina itself, there was consternation, indecision. The the Ansar, those, that is, uh, the Ansar uh, is this term. I'm going to keep writing these things in there. Not, just so you... The Ansar are the, the uh, Muslims who joined him, Muhammad, when he moved to Medina. So remember, he fled Mecca, goes to Medina, and the group of Muslims who join him there are known as the Ansar so these are like to call they use this term these people have a lot of respect in the community because you know he has to flee Mecca these are so this is kind of a honorific title for uh, you know highly looked upon in Islamic history we're soon suggesting that they should choose a leader for uh, for the Muslims of Medina and the Quraysh, that is the tribe that ruled Mecca, should choose a leader for those of Mecca. So we're beginning to see, all right, well, you guys, the Karajites, basically said, we're going to choose our own leader. The Medina Muslims were saying, we're going to choose our own leader. The Mecca Muslims, okay, you guys choose your own leader. And so exactly what we, we're afraid of is, is starting to happen. You're starting to hear this going on immediately after Muhammad's death. So the, so there's a decision made by Muhammad's trusted, trusted closest followers, those leaders, that leadership cadre underneath uh, Muhammad uh, so that'll that'll be uh, decisions made to elect Abu Bakr as the uh, Khalifa that is the deputy who would lead the community in Muhammad's absence so Abu Bakr, was recognized, and we you should have heard that name before, Abu Bakr. He was portrayed in the movie, in that movie, The Message. Uh, we've talked a little bit about him before. He was recognized by the, almost the entire community as the most qualified to lead in Muhammad's absence. So Abu Bakr was a general, uh, that basically a general in the Islamic armies. He had led battles, led men into battle. Uh, he was one of the earliest followers, remember, so... Uh, he was a wealthy man. He was the one who bought back the slaves. Uh, you remember that scene in the message where the slave is being crushed by the stone? He buys that slave. So he's uh, well-respected by the entire Islamic community. And so everyone says, you know, we can, we're can, we happy with this decision. Omar, uh, a trusted military leader and, and one of the later caliphs, Voices his support of Abu Bakr. So this is one of uh, probably the most important general under Muhammad uh, when Muhammad was even alive. Uh, voices his supportance for Abu Bakr. So these Ansar, these Medinan believers, the Quraysh tribe in Mecca, they all uh, they all soon follow. So they're all saying yes. You know Abu Bakr is is we all recognize him as someone who has authority, who commands respect, has lived. Uh, exemplary life so yes let's get behind him and he's made the first caliph under Islam and so this picture is a uh, it's from the uh, Persian um, one of the Persian empires and we know it's a Shia image uh, because they actually depict people and you can see Muhammad here with the the face blocked out and then Abu Bakr is is right here, so I mean, obviously, these, it doesn't matter what they look like for us, but just so you know. So Abu Bakr, these are the picture of the caliphs after Muhammad. <clears throat> so Abu Bakr's under Abu Abu Bakr's leadership, there a military campaign gets started right away uh, to spread Islam in earnest. So the first of these conflicts was known as the Riddah, The Rinda Wars, uh, fighting those who sought to break away from Islam. Because remember, right after Muhammad dies, these groups, these Karajites, groups like this, began to break away. They're not sending the alms, the uh, zakat anymore, the tribute. So Abu Bakr begins to fight these wars against these groups, basically to bring them back under the fold. And so that's the first. Uh, that's um, one of the first things they do is let's bring these people back. Forcibly under, into the Islamic community. While the regions who were only nominally or superficially followers of Muhammad in his lifetime were now wholly and completely integrated into the Islamic empire, providing income through the zakat and also providing an impetus so that we don't have any more apostates from the, the community. And this is an important concept because we talked a little bit about this last... think in the last session. You know, under Muhammad, he basically let a lot of the outlying areas do their own thing. I mean, once they paid the zakat, they were fine. They didn't have to adopt Islam. They didn't have to um, join up in these wars and battles if if they didn't want to. But all this changes after Muhammad's death and Abu Bakr takes the lead because now these groups are increasingly being made to become Muslims and to... Uh, do more than, you know, basically adopt the ways uh, in a more intense fashion uh, of, of these, the community in Medina. Uh, any questions so far on this? So this is going to be a little, the the historical part of the lecture. Once we push through this, we can get into a little more discussion. Abu Bakr's leadership only lasts two years. He dies in 634. <clears throat> Omar, who follows is the next? As we talked about, the uh, really respected military leader was chosen as the next caliph. Under Omar's leadership, the Islamic armies had important victories against the Byzantine Empire in 636 at the Battle of Yarmouk. It's, uh, that's not that important. Uh, this victory paved the way for the capture of Palestine and Greater Syria. So, because of this great battle, you know, if we had the map of Basically, they head northeast, win some important vac- vic- uh, victories against the Byzantine Empire, and grab uh, the whole uh, eastern coast of the Mediterranean and push up north. How, about how,
1: how many Muslims are there
0: at this time? I, w- I think it's somewhere a couple hundred thousand. Oh. Yeah. So the armies, I think they're able to, vo- against... I think their army was 100,000 that they in the battle of Yarmouk. I think I, I have double checked that oh, number. You're talking
1: 636?
0: Yeah, oh. 636. Yes, okay. 636. So, cuz I was under the impression there's 3 billion now. Uh, yeah, so uh not quite. Yeah, almost 3 billion Muslims now. Correct. Yeah. So this is um, they're able to uh, a pretty good sized army against the Byzantine Empire. And, you know, the Byzantine Empire is, is a, in decline at this point. Uh, and so this kind of is like the death knell for the Byzantine Empire. So they don't—they're able to keep start taking territory, pushing the Byzantines back farther west. After this, uh, important military victories were also won against the Sassanian, the Persian Empire. So they basically are heading north, east, and west. And the two greatest superpowers—if you remember—we talked about these uh, regional superpowers who were in the area just before Muhammad was uh, born, it was the Byzantine Christian Empire and then the Sassanian Persian Empire. And they're able to, all of a sudden, they're able to, because both of these groups are now starting to, uh, have been fighting each other for a long time, so they were pretty weak. But all of a sudden, this Muslim army is able to start winning important victories. So this, you know, this um, gains them land, and also pushes these, these people out of these areas. And a lot of the places that, they, that fall under their control stay under Muslim control to this day. So they begin, the expansion of the empire really begins to grow. Um, the Sassanian that's when they capture Iran, they capture Iraq. By 642, all of Egypt is captured and they continue to make new, major gains into North Africa. Umar dies in 644, and the next caliph was Uthman. Uthman Uthman was not. Yeah.
1: How important is the Quran at this point? Now he transitioned out of uh, Abu Bakr as a warlord vassal thing. Yeah. And now Umar's muscling in with uh, the Muslim Islam thing. Yeah. So is he really shoving? uh, the uh, Quran down people's throat to
0: convert. It, it's accelerating now. Oh. It, it accelerates under Abu Bakr, and uh, Uthman is the one who really begins. So this one that we're just about to talk about is the one who sends it out, sends the Quran. He compiles it and then sends out copies oh, okay. to the land. So now he's he's the one that's it's really it's it's you know it's under Uthman that uh, it really uh, the Quran is codified and then spread oh, out okay. the
1: I was wondering yeah. if are using religious intimidation right now or,
0: um, or something. now it's beginning so. at this period under, so right around 644 to 656 is when it's beginning something like that
1: yeah now Europe's in the middle ages right now in the, yeah. the dark ages or whatever uh,
0: not quite I don't think not yet not, but, not quite but it's coming it's going into that direction correct oh, okay. Anybody who's a European history guy might know that better. <laughs> Wes,
2: so now in in my life, you know, I've heard a lot about you know the conquest of Alexander the Great and uh, and others, uh, but I had never heard this up until just tonight. Was it you think a, a former bias against the Muslims that that kept these military exploits from being?
0: I um, I don't I don't well I don't know if it's this a, is huge. I don't know if it's a bias. I think it's just that, you know, when you learn typically we learn history that applies So western civilization, you know, is usually a class that everyone's got to take at some point and it just doesn't it just doesn't factor in uh, in a lot of cases. So, but it is it is pretty big because these are, you know, victories that are the Sassanian Empire actually is coming to an end at this point. So one of the great world powers is coming to an end, and it's because of the Muslim army you know, having this effect. The same thing with the Byzantines, it's not they're already on the decline. But yeah, it is there they are um, pretty large events. And actually a lot of like military leaders, like at West Point and places, study these guys because they actually are pretty talented. Uh, Omar, especially, is a pretty talented military tactician. So he he really is a military guy, uh, a gifted, born mil- military leader. And so, you know, I think it's just a blind spot. And I don't know if we, we want to see it as something that's um, deliberate, but it is a blind spot in a lot of our...
2: History. I mean, just because, like Vienna, I think there was a big battle in Vienna later yeah. on in the, right. in the Dark Ages where the Roman Catholic forces uh, defeated the... Muslim forces and yeah you know so you hear about that but you didn't hear about the victories
0: yeah well and it's these victories that actually set up you know that will eventually set up the, the Crusades because they're capturing this land Palestine Jerusalem marching up into Syria taking these these lands and it's that's by the time you reach the 10th 11th century you know you have this fueling of the Crusades now to ca- recapture okay so it, it's that tells us how what you know how these people got the land that the, the, you know the crusades eventually go to to try to uh, get uh good question any other uh comments or questions feel free if you know a little bit more about this history than i do i mean I, my history is like middle eastern history so I'm, I'm blanking i don't know that european aspect middle age history um uh, Othman himself was not a, a gifted military leader, unlike Omar. But uh, the reason he's noteworthy is because um, Omar, who is his predecessor, who who's dead now, favored the Meccan followers and Ansar, uh, the Meccan and Ansar. So the, basically, Omar uh, looks to the oldest, the ones, of the original followers. So the the people who came with uh, Muhammad. Out of Mecca to go to Medina, and then the Muslims that join him, the Ansari, who join him in Medina, he basically gives all those people like the prominent positions, gives them land, gives them little uh, fiefdoms to rule, and gives you know gives them wealthy position you know wealth uh, these kind of things all to uh, so that's under Omar and under and Uthman he he is a um, part of the Quraysh tribe. So he's starting to reverse all of that. You know, the, he, instead of favoring the, the Muslims who are with the community from the very beginning, he's saying, you know, like, let's make this a Meccan thing and let's make it more tribal after that. And it's this last point that would surface when Uthman comes to power. Uh, this idea that, you know, he's a Quraysh tribe, he's part of the Quraysh tribe, and he now begins to give prominent positions to this tribe again. Uh, that actually it was uh, the first uh, well let's hold off on that so this sets up a power play scenario what uthman does his policies when he first comes to power sets up this power play that's going to lead into this first civil war but it also leads to his assassination so he's assassinated in 656 uthman Abu Bakr and Omar had been strong leaders, commanding the respect of the Muslims. Uthman ended up being a sorry figure who couldn't even get his fellow Medinans, because remember the Medina is where they're, they're, they're the capital of the empire is, he couldn't even get his fellow Medinan Muslims to protect him. So, you know, a group of Egyptian Muslims show up in Medina and assassinate them basically in front of everybody and no one protects them. Because they, they just don't look at him as a good leader. Ali, uh, who's the last caliph, remember he's he's related to Muhammad. Uh, he's shortly changed uh, challenged by this uh, character, Muawiyah, who you don't have to memorize his name, or know his name, but just uh, so, just mention it. He's part of the Umayy, uh, this clan that Uthman's part of. So you have this clan of the Quraysh tribe and Ali, who's in the bloodline of the prophet, now who's also the caliph, beginning to come into conflict over what Uthman had done. And part of this is a result of Ali is actually in the city. He's in Medina when Uthman's assassinated. And he doesn't do anything. He doesn't take people and go to protect them because it's not like it was in, in the middle of the night kind of thing. I mean, you just had a group of Egyptian Muslims march into the city uh, and then, you know, assassinate this guy. Ali doesn't do anything to stop it. He doesn't try to help Uthman. And so these uh, Umayyads begin to see, you know, see that, you know, Ali not only didn't help, but he dishonored Uthman and this tribe by not helping. And he doesn't punish those because everyone knows who did it. You know, we know who did it. We know we, today the, the group of Egyptian Muslims who, who did this. Everyone knew who, who it was, and they're never punished for what they do, and that which also points to the fact that Uthman is is not very well looked upon by the community. So the result of this conflict, and we'll, we'll flesh this out more when we get to uh, to the Shia part of this this uh, lecture, is that Ali loses power base, and the first. Islamic dynasty, the Umayyads, which are based in uh, Damascus, is what results from this. After Ali loses uh, loses power, <clears throat> all this takes place in the context of the weakening, faltering Byzantine and Sassanid influence over the region. Ali himself is murdered in six sixty one. So, and then <coughs> put these out of order. So the civil war in which Ali was defeated had many important consequences for the subsequent history of the Middle East. Quite apart from the emergence of Shi'ism as a political movement, it also affected the geographic and ethnic distribution of the population. Um, I have a map. That. <clears throat> so that quote I just read, this is modern day from the... Uh, Pew research Pew Research Center. so this is the modern-day Middle East. you can see in purple uh, these are so this is the Muslim Middle East right and the green areas the the light green areas are Shiite majority. the darker green areas are um, uh, have a Shiite uh, minority and you can see this conflict that happens under Ali uh, immediately following Ali's death, this is what shapes why there why they're Shia in this area, in Yemen, in Iran. So today, if we um, if we look at what's going on right now in in the, in the Middle East today, you know, if you pay attention to the news, Lebanon's uh, prime minister is is being held in Saudi Arabia right now, and there's there's a conflict. Saudi Arabia is fueling a civil war in Yemen. A year ago in Bahrain, there was an uprising against the the Sunni uh, leadership, which in a Shia country, Iran, and uh, we already know what's going on, what's been going on in Iraq for a long time, Syria. We know what's been going on in Syria. All of these areas uh, have have a lot of conflict in them, and it's you know this Sunni Shia struggle. So the shape, the face of the modern Middle East. Has a lot of it. What it uh, has a lot to do with what's going on now in the seventh century, the civil war that that results. uh, Going back to Uthman and and Ali and these guys, a large uh, number of the supporters of Ali were Yemeni tribesmen who came in to settle in the region uh, into Kufa in Iraq. So a lot of the. So I think. Yemenis considered themselves culturally superior to the North Arabian tribes and felt they had been politically shunted aside by the Umayyads, and they were the first to rally to Ali's party, thus beginning the significant Shia presence in Iraq. So from this point on, Iraq is majority Shia. I mean, it's these Yemeni tribesmen who first follow Ali, then settle in Iraq, in southern Iraq. Kufa is roughly like right here. And then that ta- that flavors the type of Islam that you have in Iraq. And you know, uh, Iran Iraq fought a ten year war, if you remember, if you know your regional history, you know, uh, because Saddam Hussein, who was a Sunni from a Sunni tribe, was ruling a Shia majority country, and he was always worried about the Shia influence of Iran. The significance of all this is on one hand related to the issue of power. Under Muhammad's example, there was a natural tendency to allow him uh, political and religious leadership in recognition to his place as God's prophet. So they, there was a acceptance that Muhammad was both the political and the religious leader of the community because he was God's chosen prophet. These Caliphs didn't and couldn't claim that same form of authority. But they did see their authority as God-given. So their leadership was not simply that of a king, uh, a man-appointed ruler, in other words, but their identification as caliph meant that they ruled as deputies. And that's really what this term caliph, if we were to translate it, is deputy. Uh, Not not literally, but uh, figuratively. uh, uh, Deputy as God's prophet and apostle to uh, Muhammad, so Muhammad's deputy. There was a solidification of religious and political authority, that was previously present but not codified. So, from the, you know, it was basically just an accepted thing that Muhammad embodied both the religious and the political leadership of the community, just because of the nature of how things are unfolding. He's God's man. You know, they recognize him as somehow you know anointed by God to do this thing. These other guys couldn't claim that same authority, but but they are but uh, in the same way they do claim that authority and then what you end up having is this official joining of the political and religious leadership of the community. So during the reign of the early caliphs, there was a shift in the priorities of the Islamic empire going back to the previous question. Instead of simply taking cities and putting them under tribute, while still allowing a level of independence for religion and governance, the goal now was an exportation of official Islam. So not only are they just putting these countries under tribute, they're actually exporting the official brand of Islam that Uthman had helped create with with the codification of the Quran. This was marked by the sending out of the Qurans, the official Quranic, the Uthmanic Quran, but also Quranic reciters to teach the new regions and Muslims their particular way of Islam. Replacing existing culture with Islamic one, so you begin having the replacement of all the indigenous culture with Islamic culture, which is why you see, uh, you know, Islam takes uh, is very much a part of the culture of the entire Middle East, even if you're Christian. And I remember having a conversation with a a, a Palestinian pastor about this. Regardless of if you're Christian or Muslim, Islam is is a part of the whole worldview. It's how they make the laws. It's how, and we're not talking about like Sharia religious law. It's embodied. Islam is embodied in, in just how laws are created, in the whole process, marriage, civil ceremonies. All of these things are be, be are a reflection of the fact of, of what happens at this point. <clears throat>
1: yeah. What, uh- Reasonable correlation be how Christianity has affected Western culture, such such that American culture um, uh, would would a Muslim look at American culture as affected by Christianity, like we're trying to look at Middle Eastern culture as affected by Islam.
0: Yeah, and I think that's actually a really good parallel. I was actually just reading some missionary this article dealing with missionaries and the fact of using this term Christian to describe a Muslim background believer, someone who has come out from Islam, and we want to call them a Christian. We want them to refer to themselves as a Christian. But in the Muslim world, being a Christian basically just means you're from the West. It doesn't doesn't have the same meaning that we ascribe to it. So it, there is a, a really, it is a, a, a good analogy of what's going on is that... Um, how the Muslim world sees the West and Christianity is what we're talking about uh, uh, what's going on in the Middle East. I mean, this article was basically arguing that, you know, um, if they decided to call them, themselves Christians, fine, but we shouldn't uh, tell them they should call themselves Christian uh, because of culturally they see that as just meaning someone from the West. They don't see it w- the way that we do. So, without unpacking all that stuff, just giving this label doesn't mean the same thing that we do. But yeah, exactly. Great question. And comment. Uh, anything else uh, to this point? <clears throat> Islam is a worldwide phenomenon at this point. It's growing. So, as we talked about, it, you know, it's spreading up towards Turkey at this point. It's taking all of North Africa. It's spreading out of south, uh, Saudi Arabia. It's already taken down south this way. It's spreading into Iran, Iraq. This was the homeland of the Sassanid Empire. It's pushing this way as well. So you can see it's becoming a worldwide phenomenon. Remember all the trade routes? They're starting to take control of the trade routes that are going through. The sea trade is not that strong as yet, still much of trade is overland. In the end then, Sunni Muslims accept Muawiyah, this person who had pushed back against Ali. They accept his rise. He lacked, religious authority but he guaranteed the basic order that the faith was thought to need remember and this goes back to the original point we started with today there was a fear of what was going to happen to the community things were starting to break up things were starting to fall apart and this this person Mu'a'iyah basically said you know we can make this I'll make this stable and, and give it the order it deserves so he gets this support under the Umayyad empire uh under the Umayyads, the caliphs became both pope and caesar, delegating authority over religious matters to professional religious scholars and functionaries, the ulama. So these are the religious leadership, the clerics. This is still a term used today. the Sunnis were well on their way to embracing their traditional stance of accepting a regime's legitimacy so long as it provided order that it protects Islam and left religious matters to the ulama. Can you think of any any country right now who basically would fit that bill? That provides order, protects Islam, and leaves all the religious matters to the ulama. Any country in the Middle East. One that should jump out to you is Saudi Arabia. So this this is a, a would describe modern day Saudi Arabia, the ruling the ruling family the, the House of Saud. These guys are not, I mean they're they're anything but religious. They're not religious leaders. They are just the ruling family, but they protect Islam, they provide order, they let the clerics the Wahhabi uh, clerics do do their thing, and they they are the ones that support and give the money. So <coughs> all the mosques. That are a lot of the mosques that are built around the world are funded out of Saudi Arabia. The Qurans that are given away free on campus, college campuses, a lot of times are funded by Saudi Arabia. But it's the the, the religious ulama who actually have all the authority, who have all the religious authority. The, the Saudi family, you know, they're, if you ever watch the news and paid any attention, they're like, these are like princes that are getting busted for prostitution, they're being you know, engage in homosexual activity, you know, they're doing all this lavish lifestyle, alcohol, drugs, they're always getting in trouble for. But it's also the place that, you know, births people like um, uh, the bin Laden family. You know, because you have this religious authority that is able to, you know, you have religious police running around that, you know, uh, will... You know, beat up a woman if she's out without a a scarf or things like that. You know, so, uh, I mean, that's not as prevalent as it was, but it used to be, really. There was, about a month ago, there was a woman who put a a young lady who put a picture of herself from behind and walking around somewhere in Saudi Arabia with a um, miniskirt, just like a, I mean, it wasn't like super short, but it was from behind, her just walking around in a miniskirt and the police arrested her because of she puts this picture of herself on Instagram. So you have, to this day, this religious ruling, these clerics setting their agenda uh, and with the full um, approval of the Saudi family. All right, so we're gonna start our Shia section, but I do wanna read this quote that I, for some reason, put at the very beginning of the uh, slides. The Shia-Sunni conflict is at once the struggle for the soul of Islam, a great war of competing theologies and conceptions of sacred history and a manifestation of the kind of tribal wars of ethnicities and identities so seemingly archaic at times, yet so surprisingly vital, with which humanity has become wearily familiar. This idea of Shia-Sunni conflict for the soul of Islam. And you know this map really points that out. If we're looking at all the flashpoints in the Middle East right now I and mean, we can see where, where, why there's a those places are the way they are. it helps to give us an idea. So here's a picture. This is actually Dearborn. So they have these march they have these uh, rallies in Dearborn every year during this holiday, religious holiday. And they'll march through this is actually if you know this is uh, over by Greenfield. The baseball diamond, the baseball fields over by Greenfield. And so the the Shia faithful will march through the city with these flags and say, yeah, Hussein. And that's all they're basically uh, all these things that they have. You know, basically it's a religious holiday that the Shia celebrate. But I just thought this would be an interesting picture because you haven't, you know, uh I remember we were driving one day and all of a sudden it's like you just see this long parade of people all dressed in black uh, marching through the street in downtown Dearborn. <clears throat> the Shia-Sunni conflict has captured world attention, but to Arabs and Iranians, Afghans, Pakistanis, who are living in the region, it's an age-bold scourge that has flared up from time to time to mold Islamic history. It molds theology, law, politics. It has been far more important in shaping the Middle East than many realize or acknowledge. So we 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 tend to want to see is this conflict between Islam and the West, you know, the clash of civilizations. The reality is that the Middle East has been more shaped by, uh, you know, the, the shape, the face of the modern Middle East, where people groups are distributed. We're not talking about modern borders, but where people are distributed, where families are from, where re, you know, ethnicities are. Is, is a really big part the Sh- the Sunni-Shia conflict. So having acknowledged this ongoing conflict and its importance in understanding the Middle East as a whole, we want to look at some, some basic beliefs, some basic practices of the Shia Muslims. As we discussed, Abu Bakr was chosen as the first caliph through this concept of consensus. So this is a religious term, consensus, that you know, of... Of the religious leadership, Shia Muslims believe that what should have happened. So that's the Sunnis. The Sunnis basically say we all have this uh, general consensus agreement that Abu Bakr should be the leader. Yeah.
2: Quick question: Do you see Shia going Shia, Shia going Sunni, going back and forth, or do once or
0: uh, you mean as far as like almost like conversion? Yeah. Yeah. No. Never almost never it's basically what you are at birth is what you're going to be until you die yeah there's no there's no like there the Sunni believe that the Shia are like you know like the worst kind of apostates you know like if you listen to the rhetoric coming out of Saudi Arabia about what the Shia the Shia Muslims you would think that they were like the scourge of the, the earth
1: do you have like an analogy in in Christendom that would help us understand the so so like Baptists and Presbyterians we think Presbyterians are brothers in Christ but they're wrong on certain things but Shia Sunnis are like no you're completely wrong
0: yeah absolutely there's yeah they're basically and that's why the terminology they use is apostates so they are um, apostates and it's actually a violent it flares up violently and it, 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 it's so entrenched, and it, uh, there's no why you have in the, in the last 15 years a lot of the conflicts have to do with this. So, why, why was Saddam Hussein, you know, why was there this uprising in, in Iraq that the Americans helped through? And then, why did it take the shape? What happened in Iraq? It's because you had the whole country is <coughs> Shia, it's like 70% Shia, 68% Shia and you had the Sunni ruler basically keeping all the Shia down. You know, so the best jobs, the government, everyone, if you were uh, Sunni, you got, you know, a pass to do the best and, you know, all the great positions and actually Christians as well. He, he gave Christians a lot of uh, supported Christian areas and regions, allowed certain government positions to go to Christians. But if you were Shia, you were always the worst, got the worst positions in the military you know the worst positions in gov. You know you couldn't get into the ruling part of the government. Um, you were kept in like ghettos. Same thing. Uh, it's, it was the exact opposite in in Syria because uh, Assad is uh, Alawite, which is you know an offshoot of the Shia, and you had the reverse. So what fuels that is that the Sunnis realize like forget. You know I'm sick. We're sick and tired of this, and they uprise against the Shia. So there's never, there's not really an analogy.
1: So the U.S. is helping the Shia in Syria, but the U.S. helped the Sunni in Iraq.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and we actually, yeah. There's actually, and well, that's that's the critique, right? We don't have any. There's no coherency in our in our foreign policy in the Middle we East. We don't have
1: a paradigm that fits this. this we concept.
0: just want to. It's basically expediency that we follow across the board in the Middle East. What? What helps us to gain our, our strategic goals? You know, painting Iran as part of the axis of evil, if you remember that that phrase, the axis of evil. Iran was part of it. Iran, North Korea, Iraq, the, the axis of evil. Iran, um, you know, and then calling Saudi Arabia like our greatest friend. Mm-hmm. You know, 20, 20 of the hijackers on uh, September 11th are Saudi. Like I said, Saudi... Uh, Osama bin Laden himself is Saudi. All these guys, Saudi money that, that fuels this extremism, the Wahhabi religion, all these things flowing out of Sunni areas. You know, it's... Um, there's... Yeah, there's no so coherence. There's,
1: there's no national... This this trumps any kind of nationalism.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, and... Uh, I mean, even in Yemen right now. So if you pay attention to what's going on in Yemen, there's like the worst famine... And uh, going on in modern, like in the modern period, I mean, you know, children are dying on a daily basis in Yemen from starvation, and it's 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 all a Sunni Shia related conflict. Saudi Arabia is is supporting the Sunnis, the Sunni ruling party against the Shias who come in the Houthis that are trying to take power in, in Yemen. Phyllis, so
1: so what precipitated? Was there something specific? in their differences their their interpretation of the Quran or, or what precipitated such a such a chasm between yeah.
0: the sects? well great question that's, so that's going to be our, that's a great segue question into why what, <laughs> what is it no it's a good question because now we're going to try to understand how do we understand this conflict what is it about the differences in the Shia that help that make it so that these groups are so fundamentally different that they won't There there can't be any reconciliation uh, according to them. You know, for us it seems it seems strange, right? Because we when we think in our minds as Americans, we're sitting here and we think Muslims, right? There's just Muslims. There's Christians, there's Muslims, there's whatever. But Muslims are Muslims. And but the reality is, you know, there's a lot of difference, there's a lot of fractition, a lot of factionalism.
1: As far as the radical part of with ISIS, do they coexist within
0: that, or do they... Uh, so those groups are, are all Sunni. Yeah, so ISIS, Al-Qaeda, those are all Sunni Sunni groups, uh, just 100%. There's no uh, Shia part. And actually, the Shia... They wouldn't, they wouldn't even take one in. The Shia armies is are, are what helped the United States and the Iraqi government defeat ISIS in, in Iraq. It was the Shia militias being sent from Iran that ended up going into Iraq to help help the situation. I, I,
2: I think I mentioned this to you one time, but a good example of this is when my son was critically injured in Afghanistan. A, a Muslim man that I work with, Alex, called me at the hospital in Washington, D.C., to tell me that... Um, the Sunnis are the ones that did this yeah. to him and not be upset with him because he wouldn't have done it. Right. So he, he called to let me know that his Muslim people were not responsible for my son
0: who might die. Absolutely. It was very important for him for me to know which part he was yeah. in that. And it's so hard for us because we just we struggle to make this differentiation. We we struggle <clears throat> just wanna we wanna oversimplify it. To help us to understand, but that's exactly exactly what's going on with us. I have a question for Val. Was he telling the truth? Uh,
2: he was. He was okay because okay. Yes, I've known him for many years. He was. Oh, he okay. Because my my experience in teaching in Dearborn is, you have the phrase "I swear to God." And so you know when that phrase is given, it's probably a ninety nine point nine 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 percent chance that it's a flat out lie.
0: Let's. Well, we actually will touch on that. There's the Shia. What? Because there's a practice among the Shia, but I I would say that her point is correct because she's exactly right. So Afghanistan in Afghanistan, Al Qaeda is is a Sunni insurgency, and so him saying you know. Not all Muslims are bad. We're part. We're not even part of that Sunni group, you know. So she is, without even him having to say anything else. If we understood the, he was worried because he understands. Alex rightly understands that we struggle as Americans to see any kind of complexity. We want to just put it all together. Yeah. And so he he's making this point. Yeah. He wanted to separate right. himself from that. But if we right. if we worked at it, we we would see and understand. That there are there are there is complexity there, and we can't just uh, oversimplify things. Uh, Yeah, Jerry. So
2: Shia will kill Sunni, Sunni will kill Shia, but Shia won't kill predominantly outside in attacks.
0: Well, the Western side. Yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, well, most I would say right now, almost all the. All of conflict-driven, the violence, the really strong, the is is being driven from the Sunni aspect, and and more Muslims are dying. Muslims in the Middle East die to other Muslims more than to Americans. I mean, more they're killing more Muslims than they kill Americans and Westerners, Uh, and it's mostly the Sunni, uh, the the Sunni end of it because they're the ISIS, the Al Qaeda, these uh, all these groups that you hear of. Um, you know, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, Al Qaeda in, in Africa—all these groups are made up of Sunni Muslims. So yeah, I think uh, that would be a, a general truth that you can follow. Yeah. Although you know, so it's not been a complete because remember, there's Iran takes the U.S. embassy, it doesn't kill everybody, but he t- they, at one point in the late '70s, you remember they take the U.S. embassy and that starts the, the Islamic Revolution. so I think you had another follow. up would it be logical, then, to assume that most of the Muslims in Dearborn are Shia? Uh, it's not... Well, I think just it, that's the way it plays out. Uh, only, be, you know, the the, Sh- the, the Le- Yemeni... Or, excuse me, the uh, Lebanese uh, are the Sh- are. It's predominantly Shia, the Lebanese who are here, and they've been here the longest, and they're the largest ethnicity in Dearborn, as far as the, the Muslims go. But if you head over to... Uh, you know, the southeast corner, uh, it's mostly Yemeni, and then you start to run into the Sunnis. Is,
1: is Dearborn still considered yeah. the largest concentration? Yeah,
0: largest, the largest concentration. concentration, yeah, absolutely. There's larger populations, but not the, not to the concentration that Dearborn has. So Chicago and, I think, Los Angeles. But you, they're talking wow. spread out over an entire, you know, a, a huge area. As far as concentration goes, it's, it's Dearborn, hands down. Um, and if you and that Dearborn's a, a great example of this. they don't mix for the most part, the Shia are in one area, the Sunni are in another area and they don't mix with each other. You know they um, these groups just they, there's a resistance to want to be around others because they just see themselves they, they see the Sunnis see the Shia as an apostates as apostates. and the Shia recognize this they, the Shia, it's not that the Shia, are saying this about the Sunni as well, but the Shia recognize that they they're in the weaker position historically, and they've always seen themselves and, and, uh, in that position.
1: What do they name as their reason for? Because to call them an apostate is to say that they're not following after yeah. God. So, so we're going to
0: get into that. Okay. Yeah, we will get into. So it's great. no, it's a great question. What is it that that allows for this claim? And that's what we're going to try to get into. Um, um, just to add on, like the the
1: divide when when someone like a Muslim will talk to me they'll ask me where in Lebanon I am from Yeah. so they know if I'm Sunni or Shia it's like there's different like tribes and areas and like uh, like counties basically Yeah. so like if I'm from one county like that'll depend on how they talk to me or whether or not they will talk to me
0: right and sometimes so they can I just tell Sunni or Shia. they can tell it just by name sometimes yeah. so it's yeah, just like, like basically everyone named Ali are like Shia basically. Yeah. <laughs> Ali Hussein, yeah. you know uh, Hassan. Any of these names, they're going to be—they just—it's a dead ringer that they're Shia. So yeah. I mean, even Muslims uh, Sunni won't even use those as names normally for their kids because those are just—you know. Uh, there was a question: yeah, um, Do we um, use?
1: Are we able to use the word uh, Muslims in Islam? Is that interchangeable as words?
0: I'm getting a little bit confused on those two. The Muslim is is the follower. Re- Islam is the religion, okay. and the Muslim is the person. Okay. Yeah. Like, Christians. like Christians
1: and Baptists. And Baptists are Christians. Okay. okay. Yeah. Thank
0: you. It it breaks down because you know it's like Christianity would be Islam, Islam and Christianity, and so then Muslim
1: is a noun and can't be used in a, as an adjective. But yes. Muslim
0: Mm -hmm. is can be used as an adjective. Correct. Yeah. Um, Muslim is would still be a noun. Muslim is a noun, but can also be used used as as an adjective. Correct. I
1: would say Islamic would be
0: the. Yeah, and the adjective would be Islamic.
1: So So you would not describe a person as
2: Islamic. Yeah. It'd be Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: Muslim. So do the Sunnis not like us because we don't understand them or?
0: No, no 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 so it's not so much it's the the sunni claim what the isis groups the al-qaeda groups osama bin laden uh, zawahiri these guys um what their problem with americans in the west are is that they see as um there's a couple of things so there's one there's support for israel two is that we we Osama bin Laden's biggest claim against America was that we've had military bases in Saudi Arabia. So, Saudi Arabia are remember what we talked about um, what is a, a, a they accept a regime's legitimacy as long as it provides order, protects Islam and leaves religious orders to the ulama. So, having a western military base in the heart of Islam, which is Saudi Arabia, Means that they're not really protect. You know, it's an assault. It's an assault on Islam. They see it as it's basically unclean, unbelievers in our in our homeland. So there's the support of Israel. There's the military bases in places like Saudi Arabia, and then the exporting of Western decadence, immorality, uh, and things like that. So there, there's a combination of reasons reasons why uh, that that crop up um why like what they claim against uh the West so I don't know if that that's helped that's but that's really the the issue um that we they have uh with 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 the West is, is are those three things predominantly
2: but that would be the
0: Sunni that have the problem with right this.
2: yeah why wouldn't Shia if they have the same belief system
0: uh mainly it's it's a result of how who the Shia how does Shia fit into um, Islam. It's they're they're like the weaker group, so they're like, you know, it's it's the power the powerful group is the one who sets kind of the agenda. The Shia have always seen themselves as under assault, and so they're not really looking to. I mean, there was a little bit. Do you remember? I mean, the Ayatollah, you know, describes America as the Great Satan. You know, so th- there is some of that, but there's not like. Basically, the Iranian or the Shia position is, if you leave us alone, you know, we don't have any problem. We can, we can work together. The Sunni is like, it's a very proactive, we actually have to fight, we have to fight against the West because um, they're, they're assaulting Islam. And the the violent aspect comes into it. Uh, Dan, question.
1: It's kind of like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, sometimes so the Sunnis are put downtrodden, or I'm sorry, Shia. the Shia is downtrodden. Yeah, we're the enemy of their enemy.
0: But the, and the but the problem for us is that for the from the American standpoint is that we've always identified with the Sunni kingdoms going back until because you know going back for generations we've been identified with the Saudi kingdoms and these in these groups. So we've actually. Partnered in a very strategic way with the, the Sunnis. And we actually, even though they're the ones who the majority of the violence and, and cause a lot of the problems, instability, those are the groups who we've chosen to align ourselves with. And so you would think that would be, that's the case for them, but for us it's more, you know, well, I don't want to get into conjecture, but yeah. Uh, you know, why, why we give support to places like Saudi (coughs) Arabia. Oil. I didn't say
1: (laughs) I was also going to say, do the Shia focus more on different passages in the Quran than the Sunni do?
0: So, yeah, uh, this is like what I was going to say to Phyllis, is that we are going to cover, but to give the quick answer, the Shia believe, they follow, so this Uthman, Remember, he's the one who codifies the Quran. So he brings all the all the different versions together. They they put one version. They say this is the this is the version, the official version. They destroy all the other versions and then send out that official version throughout the empire. Shia used the Uthmanic uh, uh, Quran, but what they say is that the Uthman and the Sunnis have have changed the order. They have corrupted. They've like mixed up the order of, of the Quran. So they use the same Quran, but they they don't believe that it's it's the same one that that Muhammad received. Uh, it, it's the same word for word, but it's been mixed up. The order has been mixed up. So that, because and this gets in kind of an esoteric is they believe Ali had the official version that he had written himself because he was there. He was next to the Prophet for his the entire time. Ali is one of the first believers that when Muhammad starts receiving these revelations, he's there with Muhammad from beginning to end. And they believe that he wrote his own version of the Quran and kept it with him the whole time. And that even after Uthman had all the versions destroyed, Ali had the official, ver- had the official version still. And then, so they believe that Uthman has it, all the, the parts are there, but they're mixed up and out of order. Yeah. They don't add. They don't have different versions. They still use that that same.
2: So would you see festivals and stuff in Dearborn,
0: yeah, will the Shia and Sunni get together? No, Inferno these are totally just different. yeah, yeah. Uh, like cultural festivals. Mm-hmm. I think they would. I mean, you you'd see them together at like cultural festivals. but like religious festivals, no. I mean, you won't even see. They have their own separate mosque. So the big mosque on Ford Road, you never you would never see a Sunni Muslim go to a, a They would pray at like their house with a group of believers out on the street because you know under Islam you can actually just pray out in the street as long as you have some kind (laughs) of covering down. They would do that before they would go to the Shia mosque, and vice versa. The Shia would never go to the Sunni the mosque. They just would never, in religious context, mix ever. Last question.
1: For the religious holidays.
0: Yeah. Uh, No, well, the big ones which are defined by Islam by the Quran and and the, the accepted hadith between the two the, the prophets, there is they, they all celebrate those. But not together. But not together. <coughs> uh, Do people ever convert? No. No. They're going back <laughs> ever, to ever, the, ever. not to one or the other. you are just no. born into it. Right. Yeah. I think under the penalty of death and, and Shia Islam has this has a, a self protective measure, kind of what Wes was saying uh, that is basically allows for um, deception for protective reasons. So there may be instances where a Shia would follow the Sunni way of things if they were put to the sword in order not to be put to death. But there would never be a. I mean, I, I think in most countries in the Middle East, you're not. You wouldn't even be able to marry a Sunni or Shia. You wouldn't be able to even. Marry intermarry in the families. Like it would be against. It's probably any, in like places like Lebanon. It's against the law. Mm-hmm. Like it's codified in most Muslim countries that the Sunni and the Shia don't don't marry intermarry. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's pretty strict. It's the, code, the the, the Are Any of them like not religious at all? Uh, there is so there's actually there's an atheist there is an atheist movement across the Middle East, but it's it's very it's like converting Christianity basically because now you're i mean it's actually in a lot of ways becoming an atheist is worse than becoming a christian because now you're saying you're denying god you know they can under to some degree a muslim can understand someone converting to christianity because at least they're still following god what they believe is god but to say there is no god would be like it's the ultimate form of shirk or you know disbelief to say that there is no god at all so uh, there is there is an atheist movement but there it's very it's like it's more secretive than like christians who convert muslims yeah absolutely yeah almost across the board so um there's very few (laughs) and actually a lot of the communists because there was a strong in the 60s and 70s and we'll end on this note because i'm already over the communist movements in the middle east were mostly made up of christians muslims almost never you know because communism has this kind of atheistic component to it uh uh, but and those were made up of Christians. Mostly, almost all of the socialist, communist movements in the Middle East are Christian. So, we'll end there. We'll continue on. Uh, no class next week. Uh, let me close this in prayer, and then we'll wrap up. Lord God, we we thank you for today and for this evening, for uh, just the great discussion and the ability to learn a little bit more. We pray for uh, just opportunities, opportunities to put uh, to practice some of the things we've learned with our Muslim neighbors and coworkers and friends. Lord, give us a heart to reach out, to show the love of Christ to those uh, you bring into our life. We ask in Jesus' name.